I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. The following podcast contains adult content, explicit language, and sexual themes. Listener discretion is advised. And it contains murder. Lots and lots of murder. You stinking bastard. One in the chest, one in the hip. Fired by Detective Sergeant Roger Rogerson. I was uh, branching out, that's when the cannibalism started. Eating of the heart and uh, the arm muscle. Oh, oh we're now Carl Williams being still coming down with this and just pull it out of his backside. Carl Williams is a wobbly bottom little cher- cherub face, cherub face little boy who would who, 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 whose life would be. I harm someone each time I kill someone to be an enormous amount of uh, uh, especially at first, an uh, enormous amount of uh, horror, guilt, remorse afterwards. But then that impulse. Do it again to come back even stronger. When 41 year old mother of three Peggy Carr got struck down with a mystery illness in October 1988, doctors didn't know what to make of it. After test results showed Peggy had been poisoned, suspicion naturally fell on her new husband, Pi. But this case would prove to be far more complicated. The real perpetrator would only be brought to justice after a long undercover operation that involved infiltrating a murder mystery weekend held by the biggest high IQ society in the world, Mensa. Hi, I'm Barney Black. And I'm Tara Saraband. And this is Bloody Murder. We're a comedy true crime podcast focusing on some of the lesser known crime stories from Australia. And indeed around the globe. Being a comedy true crime podcast means that we use dark humour as a means to tell horrifying stories. If you think humour has no business being associated with tragedy, then Bloody Murder may not be the podcast for you. Now, before we commence our sordid tales, we'd like to remind you that this episode is brought to you by our wonderful and generous patrons. Now, we've had a couple new ones join our new fancy Patreon program, which we will thank individually after our story. If you'd like to become a patron, go to our website for details. That's bloodymurderpodcast.com. As a patron, you have access to loads of other episodes, including our Comedy Equals Tragedy and Time first season (laughs) and ad-free versions of all our regular episodes. As well as exclusive monthly uncensored patron-only episodes where we were really let loose. Levels above $5 receive free stickers and handmade Barney badges. And, of course, you're automatically entered into the draw for our monthly giveaways. All right, Tara, let's get murdery. In 1988, after a whirlwind romance, phosphate miner Pi Carr and waitress Peggy Alexander got married. 
They were a large blended family consisting of Peggy's son Dwayne and her daughter Jelena and Pi's son Travis, daughter Tammy and granddaughter Casey. The small town of Alturas had a population of 600 at the time. Pi and Peggy and their kids lived in a rural area surrounded by lakes and orange groves. Their place was so far off the beaten track that their only neighbours were George Trapal and his wife Diana Carr, who was no relation to Pi and Peggy Carr. Soon after Peggy and her kids moved in, Pi began to renovate the garage into an apartment for their two daughters and granddaughter, but he did so without first obtaining the required permits. His neighbours were thoroughly unimpressed with this development. So much so that George Trapal reported Pi and his clandestine home improvements to the county authorities. The county ordered Pi to stop his renovations until he received the zoning variance and got the necessary permits, which he did, but it greatly increased the cost of the project. Bad blood between the cars and the Trapals had been brewing for years. Pi's first wife, Margaret Smith, who used to live at the property, had unfond memories of Trapal complaining a lot about their dogs. He said that they chased his cats and he would stomp his feet, yell and throw things at them if they ventured onto his property. George Trapal and his wife Diana were both extremely intelligent and were members of Mensa, the exclusive smarty pants club for people whose IQs are among the top 2% in the world. Famous Mensa members include actress Gina Davis, science fiction god Isaac Asimov, TV host and horrendous serial sex offender Jimmy Savile, and white supremacist and Holocaust denier James Van Brunn, who perpetrated the 2009 US Holocaust Memorial Museum murder of Stephen Tyrone Johns. So being highly intelligent doesn't necessarily mean you're a good person? Not always, no. Diana and Trapel had met at a Mensa meeting and seemed to have a solid marriage. Diana majored in chemistry in college and was an orthopaedic surgeon who worked long hours. George was a freelance computer programmer who worked from home but seemed to mostly live off his wife's earnings. The couple didn't have any children aside from their cats. The two also shared a love of true crime and mysteries and would host Mensa Murder Mystery Weekends where dozens of other Mensa members would come in costume, play a character, drink wine and follow the clues to solve pretend murders. The Trapals liked to get murdery. They certainly did. The couple lived in Alturas because they wanted a nice, quiet life in a nice, quiet rural area. Although they thought living next door to Pi Carr was a problem earlier, after Peggy's 17-year-old son Dwayne joined forces with Pi's 16-year-old son Travis, they realised they hadn't seen anything yet. The volume levels and tomfoolery skyrocketed and the Trapels were majorly pissed off about it, which resulted in many altercations between the neighbours. Travis and Dwayne responded to this like the rambunctious teenage boys they were with various hijinks and capers. Oh yeah, they'd turn their music up super loud. They'd set off fireworks. They rode their four-wheelers on the Trapal's property. Cars. ATVs, we've been through this. <laughs> and they'd take the piss out of their neighbours for being mad at them. One time the boys were working on Travis's truck while listening to a comedy tape that had raunchy jokes and explicit language on it. Sounds like they were listening to us. It was ribald. Ribald humour. <laughs> it was probably Rodney Rude. Trapel came over and told Pi to turn it down three times, but he refused. In September 1988, Jelena's ex-husband Chester was working on his truck and had the radio on. 
Chappelle approached him shaking with rage and insisted Chester turn the radio down because he was reading a book. Chester turned the radio down and two minutes later Chappelle came back and told Chester to turn it down even more, even though it wasn't very loud. Chappelle wanted to be able to hear a pin drop. Chappelle's wife Diana also got in on the action, going over to the cars to complain about their dogs barking or their music or just anything else that got on her nerves. And when Diana complained, she got very angry, having a rage stroke and yelling. If she lived next to you, Barney, she'd probably come over to complain about how loud your burps are. Well, that's just, that's lies. (laughs) It's truths. Though Diana would get all shouty crackers at them and they dreaded her explosions, the cars considered Trapal to not be much of a threat. Dwayne and Travis said that Trapal would sometimes wave at them and smile at them from his yard. He was probably cussing them out under his breath. Hey, how you going, you fucking stupid asshole kids? I'm smarter than the lot of you. I wish you'd just fuck off. Trapal was a short, paunchy man with a beard and thick Coke bottle glasses who the boys considered to be a big nerd. Nerd! Yeah, but hey, if the movie Revenge of the Nerds taught us anything, it's that they get revenge. Yeah, well, that's not fiction. That's a documentary, right? It is. It was shot in real time. So there was a long, simmering animosity in their neighbourly dynamic, but nobody thought anything much would come of it. In July, Pi received an anonymous letter. In it was a message typewritten on a post-it note, which said, You and all your so-called family have two weeks to move out of Florida forever, or else you will all die. This is no joke. Well, Pi thought it was a joke and shrugged it off as a prank. Yeah, the kids (laughs) thought it was bloody hilarious. Peggy was worried and thought about reporting it to the police, but the note ended up being shoved into a kitchen drawer and forgotten about. In early October 1988, Travis was washing his car and listening to the radio. Like clockwork, Trapal came over to the car's place to complain about it. He's like a genie you summon by turning on the radio. Yes, but he does not grant you any wishes. Quite the opposite. Pi told Trapal that they'd turn the radio off when Travis finished washing his car. So Trapal went and disconnected the water hose that ran from a well to the car's home. Oh, check out the big brain on Trapel. Oh, I know. He needed a neck brace to help carry it around. He must have figured if there was no water there, there could be no more car washing and thus the radio would be turned off. He is super mm-hmm. smart. Later in October, red-faced Diana went stomping over to the car's house in a fit of rage. She was screaming and cussing and yelling at them and ranting and raving about them playing their music too loud. That's just noise. That's not real music. (laughs) I haven't heard you play a single sonata. They believed her level of anger to be way out of proportion to the situation. I I tend to agree. Mm. Sick of being yelled at and cussed out, Peggy refused to do what Diana asked and just walked away. Diana stormed off shouting, You won't get away with this! To tell the truth though, I mean, I don't think I'd like living next door to those teenage boys either. (laughs) They sound pretty rowdy. (laughs) They do sound a little bit rambunctious. Two days later, Peggy and her daughter, Jelena, were waitressing at a local restaurant when Peggy began to feel very sick. She had pains in her chest, her hands felt numb and her legs and feet hurt like hell. Peggy went home and lay down, but the pain kept getting more and more intense, eventually becoming unbearable, and to make matters worse, she couldn't stop throwing up. She was taken to Bartow Memorial Hospital, where she told doctors she felt like she was on fire. The ER physicians couldn't initially find a cause for her pain. 
One cunty doctor had the audacity to tell Peggy there was nothing actually wrong with her and all her symptoms were psychosomatic. What, did he think that she pretended to vomit uncontrollably to get attention? Yeah, just like that thirsty girl from The Exorcist. Oh, yeah. Fortunately, that guy wasn't in charge and Peggy stayed in the hospital under observation for three days. During this time, her condition seemed to improve, so she was able to go home. When Travis and Dwayne came down with similar symptoms, the family assumed they all just caught a virus that was making the rounds. Days later, Peggy's symptoms returned and she was admitted to the intensive care unit of Winter Haven Hospital. Routine tests were done, but they couldn't find any cause for her illness. While Peggy was being examined later, one of her doctors noticed that her hair was falling out. Being a cluey house-like doctor, possibly worthy of immense membership, he started to suspect that Peggy may have been poisoned with thallium nitrate. Thallium is an odourless, tasteless chemical which was once widely used to poison insects and rats. But because of its extreme toxicity, and the fact it was used in quite a few murders, it was banned by the EPA in 1972. Did you know, Tara, that in the olden days they used to call it inheritance powder? I wonder why. I don't really. Make sense? Yeah, it really does make sense. Thallium poisoning is an extremely painful thing to go through. The peripheral nerve damage it causes can result in symptoms such as numbness, pins and needles, or feeling like you're on fire. Other symptoms include severe stomach cramps, vomiting, diarrhoea, hair loss and weakness. I've had hangovers like that. Yeah, I don't think you've had any that are quite this bad. Oh, no, I've had some pretty bad ones. (laughs) (laughs) If doctors are able to diagnose the patient quickly enough, thallium poisoning can be treated with the compound Prussian blue, which removes it from the bloodstream. But permanent nerve damage has usually occurred before this happens. Prussian blue? That sounds like a cat, doesn't it? So if I have a bad hangover, I need a cat. Yeah, and then it will um, get your hangover out of your bloodstream. That makes sense. I like cats. Yeah, cats are nice. When Peggy's test results came back, they showed that she had 20,000 times the natural amount of thallium in her system. Whoa. Yeah, 20,000. Dwayne and Travis's tests also came back positive for high amounts of thallium, but not nearly as high as Peggy's. Though the two teenage boys eventually recovered, Dwayne was hospitalised for two months and Travis was in there for six months. That's double, whoa! I know, that's a long time. But for Peggy, the prognosis would not be good. She had ingested too much of it and had been untreated for too long. Every day, Peggy was in more and more pain and growing weaker. Her sister Shirley Martin said that she kept wanting to know why this was happening to her. Police initially thought Peggy's husband Pye might be responsible for her illness. Their marriage had been going through problems and suspiciously he happened to be out of town on a hunting trip when Peggy fell sick. Also, he had access to thallium through his work in phosphate mining. But after finding out there was no life insurance policy he would benefit from, and tests revealed he and his daughter and granddaughter, along with his son Travis, had been poisoned too, he was no longer on the police's radar. Well, yeah, why use inheritance powder if there's nothing to inherit, Well, that's right. In hopes of finding the source of the poison, police tested virtually everything in and around the car's house, including their wells. There was concern that the thallium may have come from the insecticide sprayed on the orange groves that surrounded the car's property, so they tested samples from them too. Police sent more than 400 items from the car's house, including Coca-Cola bottles, homemade pickles, ice cubes and rat poison to a lab to be tested. 
When the results came back, they found traces of thallium in the Coca-Cola bottles. They also found the rat poison to be very poisonous. Yeah, but in a different way. Well, yeah. The thallium in the Coke had come from an eight-pack of 16-ounce glass Coca-Cola bottles that were in the car's kitchen. Three of the bottles were full, four were empty, and one was missing. The bottle caps from the full bottles showed evidence that they'd been removed by a small tool and then placed back onto the bottles with a capping device. This evidence indicated a possible product tampering which put the case under the jurisdiction of the FBI. FBI labs tested all the Coke bottles and found thallium in the three full bottles and thallium residue in the four empty bottles. Coca-Cola found no other incidents of tampering with the product and received no ransom note after the poisoning. Since removing the lids, adding the thallium and recapping the bottles was such a time-consuming process, the FBI deduced it couldn't have been done in the Coca-Cola factory or at a shop. They figured someone had to have bought the drinks and then spiked them afterwards. Interestingly enough, Tara, nobody in the car household recalled ever buying the eight-pack of Coke. I guess they just assumed it was yeah, somebody else. Yeah, someone else had bought it. I mean, there's like, you know, yeah. teenagers, there's like sort of young adults, there's yeah. the husband and the wife, and oh. yeah, I mean, you're just like, oh, it's here. Someone must have just... Oh, cool. Mum got Coke. Yeah, sweet. <laughs> Yeah. But what about, hey, do you mind if I have one of your Cokes? I thought they were your Cokes. No, it's probably just one of those, if it's in the house, yeah, it's have free for it. It's free for all, yeah. yeah. Have at it, yeah. But the cars never locked their doors, which meant somebody could have sneaked into the house when they were out and planted the poison soft drinks inside. When asked by detectives if anyone might want to harm Peggy, Pi said no, but then he thought about all the run-ins they'd had with their neighbours and reconsidered. With a potential motive emerging, police began focusing on Diana and George Trapal. Prior to this incident, two of the car's dogs had died suddenly after being in great pain and losing their fur. Police suspected that they might have been poisoned as some kind of cruel and diabolical dress rehearsal. The fact that Diana had studied chemistry raised some eyebrows with investigators, but even though there was no love loss between Diana and the cars, it was George Trapal who they decided to focus on. Not only did he have a criminal record, but he also fit the FBI's profile of a poisoner. White male, extremely intelligent, with an outwardly passive demeanour. And, you know, he was a bit of a dick. Poisoners, eh? They often do it because they feel they've been wronged and want to get back at those they think wronged them. Yeah, they tend to get a thrill from watching death from a distance. They also often leave a trail of threats. When detectives interviewed Trapal on December 22, 1988, he was very nervous. He avoided eye contact with them and stuttered through most of his answers. When they asked him why he thought someone might want to poison the cars, his response was telling. He said, Someone must have wanted them to move out of the neighbourhood. Investigators couldn't help but notice that Trapal's response was similar to the threatening letter Pi had received in March. And also none of the other 50 people they'd asked this question of had responded in such a way. Trapal told detectives that most days he went to work with Diana, so he wasn't at home and he wouldn't know the car's comings or goings, nor would he have access to their house. Now this conflicted wildly with the car family's statements that Trapal pretty much never left his house. Lies. Trapal also told the police that as a humble computer programmer, he knew nothing about poison or thallium. 
But when they did some digging into his background, they realised that was a lie. Another lie. A big lie. We'll be back with part two of the Mensa murder mystery after this. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, baby, Bonnie, two cakes. What time is it? It's true crime nerd time. Woo! True Crime Nerd Time is an opportunity for you, our listeners, to give us your recommendations for anything true crime related. It can be a book, movie, TV, series, graphic novel, song, or just about anything that has scratched your true crime itch. You can record your voice, just do it on your phone, we'll play it, or write it and we'll read it out. And we have one here from Michaela. She's from Sweden. And she writes, Hello, amazing podcasters. I have a suggestion for True Crime Nerd Time. I have recorded the clip. But my English is bad and rambling, so if you want to have this book suggestion in the pod without the recording, feel free. Skit Iron Hink and warmly greetings, Michaela. That's um, Skit Iron Hink. That's um, German for shit in a bucket. <laughs> Excellent. Oh, that's pretty good. I think we should just play the clip. Absolutely. We love good accents around here. Yes. I mean, we don't know how to do them ourselves, but we certainly appreciate it when someone has one. <laughs> Hello, Tara and Barney. I'm Michaela from Sweden. And uh, side note first, uh, I'm not that good in English, so sorry about that. Anyway, I want to recommend uh, a book by the Swedish author uh, Hannes Råstam. The name of the book is Thomas Quick, The Making of a Serial Killer. Uh, That's about uh, Thomas Quick (laughs) and... uh, also known as Sture Bergvall. He has been known as the worst Swedish hero killer in the history, almost. Uh, And he was the worst hero killer, but more worst in bad. Uh, Because uh, about uh, like the 80s and 90s, or and also the 60s and 70s, he confessed uh, up to 30 uh, murder and uh, he was uh, uh, convicted for eight murders and then it comes through that he hasn't murdered anyone. This is like the biggest scandal, true <laughs> uh, crime scandal in Sweden and it's a really really interesting case. So the book in English is named um, oh, sorry, I lost uh, <laughs> its name. Thomas Quick, The Making of a Serial Killer by Hannes Rostam. Thank you for a amazing pod. Bye. Oh, my goodness. I love your accent, Michaela. Uh, thank you, Michaela. See, I was just having a look online um, at the book, and here's what it says on Amazon. I wonder what you'd think of me if you found out that I've done something really serious. So begins the confessions of Thomas Quick, Scandinavia's most notorious serial killer. 
In 1992, behind the barbed wire fence of a psychiatric hospital for the criminally insane, woo, Thomas Quick confessed to the murder of an 11-year-old boy who had been missing for 12 years. Over the next nine years, Quick confessed to more than 30 unsolved murders, revealing he had maimed, raped and eaten the remains of his victims. In the years that followed, a fearless investigative journalist called, called Hans Rastan became obsessed with Quick's case. He studied the investigations in forensic detail. He scrutinised every interrogation, read and reread the verdicts, watched the police reenactments, <laughs> and tracked down the medical records and personal police logs until finally he was faced with a horrifying uncertainty. In the spring of 2008, Rastan travelled to where Thomas Quick was serving a life sentence. He had one question for Sweden's most abominable serial killer, and the answer turned out to be far more terrifying than the man himself. <laughs> I'm just trying to think of what the answer would be. Like, um, you can buy it on iTunes. <laughs> yeah, plop. <laughs> I'm afraid we're going to have to recall your car because it's got faulty airbags. Oh, no. <laughs> That is a shit story. Uh, we need you to work every single day this week, Tara. <laughs> oh, no, another shit story. Well, thank you, Michaela. That book was Thomas Quick, The Making of a Serial Killer by Hans Rastan, the details of which will be in the show notes. Now, if you'd like to submit to True Crime Nerd Time, visit our website, bloodymurderpodcast.com, for instructions on how to contribute. And you know what? We send stickers out as rewards. We so, uh, do. Yeah, give us your postal address if you want those. And now for the conclusion of the Mensa murder mystery. George Trapal was born in 1949 in New York City. He was the only son of a policeman and an elementary school teacher. He studied chemistry for two years at Clemson University in South Carolina before graduating in 1972 with a degree in psychology. Like a lot of people, Trapal was a bit of a party boy when he was in college. Not like me, I was... Right into the books. Oh, yeah, doing a keg stand on the books. It was widely known that Trapal didn't mind a joint or two and was quite fond of hallucinogens for both personal enjoyment and revenge. Yeah, revenge, huh? Oh, yeah, that's why I get drunk, for revenge. Revenge on what, your liver? That's right. (laughs) At one point, he became very paranoid that some other students were sneaking into his dorm room when he was out, so he came up with an unusual way to combat this problem. He coated his doorknob with hallucinogens, which would be absorbed into the skin of the trespassers to teach them a lesson. Not sure how he or his roommate made sure they didn't accidentally touch their own doorknobs. They must have been just wearing gloves all the time. Look, he wouldn't want word of that getting out at the time. Those 1970s kids would be queuing up to not only touch, but possibly lick his doorknob to get a free trip. Hey, what are you doing later, Tara? We're going to go touch Trapal's doorknob and then go to the planetarium. What about you, dude? What you doing? Man, I'm going to rub it all over my body, that knob. And then, um, did you know that God is dog spelt backwards? (laughs) (laughs) Woo! Around this time, he and a friend decided to go on a road trip. For shits and giggles, they'd pick up unsuspecting hitchhikers and give them Oreos laced with hallucinogens so they could sit back and enjoy watching their unknowing victims freak out because they were tripping balls. Also, how sadistic to, like, spike people and then, like, laugh at them when they freak out because they're tripping balls. That's, that's a sign of a dark personality. Yeah. I mean, occasionally the hitchhiker might go, cool, thanks. Yeah, they're but- like, hang on a second. Woo! Yeah, cool. 
every star in the sky is shooting. This is awesome. <laughs> but I think a lot of them would go, they've probably never had LSD before and they'd freak the fuck out. Yeah, it would be so unpleasant to not realise what was happening to you. You'd yeah. Think, you'd think, you'd think you're losing your bad. mind. Yeah. Oh, God, that's really terrifying. Three years after Chappelle's graduation in 1975, he was arrested in Charlotte, South Carolina for running one of the largest meth labs in the southeast. He was cranking out the Krankenstein. He was riding high on the blue sky. He was known to use a meth cooking technique known as the P2P method, which uses thallium in the process. Chappelle served three years in a Connecticut prison for the crime. Prison records show that he complained to corrections officials about the noise of prisoners' radios coming from the other cells. Of course he did. After being released from prison, Trapal seemed to have abstained from criminal activities. I think he just abstained from getting caught. Possibly. He had, however, studied police manuals and considered himself to be an expert on crime scene procedures. This came in handy when he and his wife Diana organised Mensa's murder mystery weekends. Over the next several months, Peggy Carr was in agony in hospital. She lost all of her hair and her weight dropped to 90 pounds. She also ended up losing the ability to speak and eventually slipped into a coma. Knowing that she'd never come out of her coma, her family took her off life support and on March 3, 1989, Peggy died. At the time of her death, Peggy Carr was only 41 years old. A month after Peggy Carr's death, an article in the local newspaper profiled upcoming events. One of them was a Mensa murder mystery weekend hosted by Diana and George Trapal. This was just the opportunity the authorities had been looking for. The Polk County Sheriff's Department had a strong suspicion that George had murdered Peggy and poisoned the cars, but they didn't have the evidence to prove it. They'd had Trapal under surveillance for several months, but still didn't have enough on him to obtain a search warrant for his property. So they decided to use undercover officer Detective Susan Gorek to befriend Trapal and Diana and hopefully come up with the evidence they needed. Detective Gorek and her team had been watching Trapal for months and rummaging through his garbage looking for clues. Detective Gorak was worried that Trapal might have seen her when she was watching him and would recognise her when she was undercover. Well, yeah, he did say he had a photographic memory. In spite of her fears, she worked hard creating her cover story and coming up with a character that would appeal to George Trapal. She decided upon Sherry Gwynn, a Mensa member and very passive woman from Texas who was in the process of separating from her domineering husband. After hearing Chappelle hated lawyers, she decided to make Sherry Gwynn's ex-husband a lawyer. Yeah, see, she's very smart, this woman. When Detective Gorek rocked up at the Mensa Murder Mystery Weekend, which was held at the Winter Haven Holiday Inn on April 14th, 1989, Chappelle was the first person she saw and luckily he didn't seem to recognise her. Photographic memory, my ass. Yeah, well, he said he had one. Like, we don't know if that's true. I'm sure he said a lot of bullshit. Oh, yeah. The participants were all given roles and had to try and solve four pretend murders, which were acted out over the weekend. Interestingly enough, each of the complicated murders was foreshadowed by the victim receiving a threatening note. As it was a role-playing game, Detective Gorick, undercover as Sherry Gwynn, now had to play another character she was given, Roberta Putnam, a socialite from San Cristobal who dabbled in voodoo. <laughs> Drinks were served to the 40-plus people and the games began. 
Diana, with assistance from Trapal, had written the murder scenarios. For this particular weekend, Trapal had written a booklet given to the members that discussed poisoning and threats by neighbours, as well as some good old-fashioned voodoo. Oogie boogie boogie boogie. Mm-hmm. Detectives were amazed by the parallels between these pretend murder scenarios and Peggy's actual murder. In the booklet George wrote was this quote, Few voodooists believe they can be killed by psychic means, but no one doubts that he can be poisoned. When a death threat appears on the doorstep, prudent people throw out all their food and watch what they eat. Hardly anyone dies from magic. Most items on the doorstep are just a neighbour's way of saying, I don't like you, move or else. <laughs> During the weekend's murdery festivities, Detective Gorick spent some time with George Trapel. Gorick said, I didn't threaten his ego or his intelligence. That made it easy for him to accept me. Trapel took a liking to Sherry and they became friends. Because Diana worked so much, it was easy for Detective Gorick to spend time with George alone. But she had to be very careful not to become a victim herself. She worried that he was onto her and just playing a game that would no doubt lead to him trying to get revenge on her. Don't touch the doorknobs. Every time they had lunch, if she left the table to go to the bathroom, she didn't eat or drink anything when she came back. Well, you wouldn't, would you? You wouldn't let him get you a straw or anything. Fun fact... The first time she went to his house, Trapal proudly showed Detective Gorek a secret hidden room that had a mannequin in bondage gear in it. I think I'd be more comfortable if he showed me his coin collection. Yeah, bored, but comfortable. How about start with a coin collection and then build up from there? Yeah, after the coin collection comes the belt made out of human nipples. No, 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 that's getting way ahead of yourself. Okay. I think it goes coin collection, then train set, and then secret sex room. Then the belt made out of human nipples. Yes, While Trapal never admitted anything incriminating about Peggy's murder to Detective Gorak, she did find several clues that pointed towards his guilt. During one visit to his house, she saw an Agatha Christie book lying on a table. It was the novel The Pale Horse, which is about a murderer who used thallium to poison his victims. Spoiler alert! I just watched that miniseries um, with Rufus Sewell. Oh, was called it good? the Pale Horse. Quite good. Witches yeah. and stuff. Oh, witches. That's what this story needs. Set in the 60s. It was cool. During one conversation, Trapal even suggested that Detective Gorek poison her husband to get what she wanted in her divorce settlement. But things really began falling into place when she discovered that Trapal made homemade wine and he owned a tool that he used to cap bottles with. Was it true crime toilet wine? Nah, it was genius toilet wine. Ray. Police expected this undercover operation they called Pale Horse to last a few months, but it stretched out for well over a year. They caught their big break when Trapel told Detective Gorick he and Diana were going to move to Sebring, Florida, so that Diana could set up a new practice. Detective Gorick immediately expressed interest in renting their old house in Alturas. Well, it is hard to find properties with secret sex rooms these days. They're just not dank enough, are they? No, they're not usually dank enough at all. As soon as she got the keys on December 12th, crime scene technicians rolled in and searched Trapel's property. Inside the garage, they found a fuckload of chemicals, none of which turned out to be thallium, but they also found some empty bottles. One of them had a white powdery residue at the bottom. Inheritance powder? Perhaps. The bottle was sent to the FBI for testing, but they had to wait three months for the results, as the FBI had a big bombing case they were working on that had their forensic resources at capacity. During this time, undercover Detective Gorick 
continued to hang out with Japal in the hopes of him confessing something to her. He constantly asked her to come over to his new crib at Sebring so he could give her the grand tour. But Detective Gorick, fearing for her safety, kept putting him off. Very wise. Mm. Three months after it was sent to the FBI lab for testing, the residue found in the bottle at Trapal's old residence was identified as indeed being thallium. Police went to Sebring to arrest George Trapal. When they banged on the door, Diana answered and she was not impressed, Tara. Mm-mm. She had a rage stroke at the cops, cursing them out and trying to block the door and stop them from entering the house. When they finally got inside, they found Trapal standing at the top of the stairs in nothing but a pair of skimpy underpants. Hey, baby. <laughs> when they told him he was under arrest, his response was, Can I put some clothes on? Nah. Mm-mm. After Trapal and Diana had been taken to the station, Detective Gorick and a search team moved in to examine the place. They found he had a jewellery screwdriver set and one was missing. The missing one matched the marks that had been left on the coke lids when they were removed so he could put the thallium in them. In an upstairs bedroom, they also found S&M literature, leg irons, handcuffs and whips. S&M literature, not porno mags? Nah, more like the Marquis de Sade. Not like my Minecraft erotic fanfiction. I personally consider your Minecraft erotic fanfiction to be the highest form of literature. Thank you, Tara. What the police couldn't find was a secret room, similar to the one that Trapal had shown Detective Gorek on her first visit to his home in Alturas. Gorek said, I thought since Trapal had a secret room in the Alturas house, he'd have one in the Sebring house too. I knew him well enough to know there was a room somewhere. At her insistence, officers continued searching the house. Eventually, they discovered a section of wall that was uneven at one end. An officer pulled on a perforated board that had tools hanging off it. When he did so, it swung open, showing a door that investigators said looked like the door to a dungeon in a Boris Karloff movie. Creepy. Behind that door, which had no handle on the inside, was a platform bed with stirrups attached to it. Detective Gorak said it looked like a torture bed. It even had a pulley system set up to lift people with. The dank room was also fully soundproofed. It sounds like he had himself a sweet home podcasting studio. Yeah, nah. Detective Gorak thought it was a torture room and she freaked out that he might have known she was an undercover cop and wanted to get her to his place so he could lock her in it. She said it gave me goosebumps. Well, I think no doorknob on the inside is pretty telling that you want to hold people captive there. Yeah, I don't like no doorknob. Less, yeah, we want doorknobs covered in hallucinogens. Yeah, exactly. And then we can go to the planetarium. Yeah, Woo! and then we can play miniature golf, dude. Hey! <laughs> well, the Trapels are very noise sensitive. Perhaps they were just good neighbours trying not to cause noise complaints with their loud, kinky sex. Oh, I think we've firmly established that they weren't particularly good neighbours. You're right. The search of Trapal's new property also uncovered several poison and chemistry books, including a pamphlet that George had written himself called Chemistry for the Complete Idiot, which is probably everyone but him. Um, (laughs) Chemistry for the Complete Idiot, Practical Guide to All Chemistry. They also found a loose-leaf folder with the title General Poison Guide. It contained photocopied pages from a book called Poison Detection in Human Organs and a chapter from another book called Death by Poison Synopsis. These pages included information about thallium and were covered in George's fingerprints. 
Yeah, they didn't find any of Diana's prints on Trapal's little poison library stash. Nah, nothing. George was charged with 15 criminal counts, including first-degree murder, attempted murder, poisoning food or water, and product tampering. Diana was questioned, but not charged with anything. At trial, Trapal's defence stated that the case against him was circumstantial, and that the only piece of evidence against him, the bottle with the thallium residue, was found in his unlocked garage. They argued that anyone could have put it there. They also argued that, according to the prosecution's case, there was just as much reason to suspect Diana Carr of the murders. Pointing the finger at your wife, eh? That won't end well. Or get you any conjugal visits. <laughs> yeah, my, my sex dungeon, it's a bit lonely down there. <laughs> I really shouldn't have done that. Mm. Of George Trapel, prosecutor John Aguro stated... Here's a man who thought he was so smart he could literally get away with murder. I think he actually believed, because of his intellectual level, he would never be found out. Wrong. Mm-hmm. The prosecution produced a large amount of circumstantial evidence that all pointed to George Trapel's guilt. After four weeks of testimony, the jury found him guilty on the first-degree murder of Peggy Carr. Trebell was also convicted of six counts of attempted first-degree murder, seven counts of poisoning food or water, and one count of tampering with a consumer product. He was sentenced to death. Despite being one of his most passionate defenders, Diana divorced George in 1996. See, pointing the finger at his wife was a bad move. Mm, yeah. It was. That's not a good move. No. Though Trapal has filed numerous appeals, none have been successful. He remains on death row in Polk County, Florida. He's been there for 29 years, which is much longer than the average. He's probably sitting in his cell right now, Tara, furious about the noise levels, constantly complaining to corrections officers about the radio and TVs on the cell block being turned up too loud. Yeah, um, prisons are really noisy places. Apparently there's a lot of like keys jingling and doors slamming and all that sort of thing. This is his version of hell, I yeah, would say. Yeah, it's pretty rowdy. Yeah, oh. no secret sex rooms. For risking her life by going undercover to catch Peggy Carr's killer, Detective Susan Gorek received the International Homicide Investigators Association Award for Excellence. And well-deserved. Yeah, I think that's well-deserved. There's some really good police work going on there. Yeah, she completely outsmarted the big Mensa genius dude. Yeah. Good on her. Wow, 29 years. Yeah, already. On death row. That's so long. It is. It is. Um, it's normally not that long. I think the sort of it was around 24 years on average recently, but yeah. still quite a long time. Wow. That was such a ride. My cat's trying to kill me. Yeah, I know. I'm scared for you. Hello, boy. Are you, are you a good boy? Can you give us a meow? He's kind of giving you a fuck off granddad look. Well, that was quite a story. I have a question for you, Tara. Yep. What is Aussie Az? I wish you'd figure it out one day. Aussie Az are tales of criminal stupidity and bloody legends with a quintessentially Australian flavour. Would you like to hear one? I would. A man who made the news in 2018 after losing his $40,000 prosthetic leg while jet skiing in Lake Macquarie has made headlines once more. Hang on, hang on. He lost his leg, his fake leg, while jet skiing. In Lake Macquarie. You heard me. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> I want to hear more. 
Personal trainer and mid-thigh amputee, 28-year-old Toby Bird, was arrested on January 3rd this year after robbery and serious crime squad detectives spent over two months investigating a bungled Central Coast robbery. Birdo allegedly strolled into the arena branch of the Westpac Bank on October 28, 2019 and demanded that a teller hand over all their cash. But the teller was like, yeah, nah, fuck that, and pressed the security button. Birdo then allegedly scampered from the store, none the richer, and drove off in a silver Audi B6 sedan. Give me all your money. Nah. Strikeforce Campbellfield was launched to investigate this Pierce Week attempt at a bank robbery. During the search warrant on Birdo's place, police allegedly seized a silver B6 Audi, prescription medicine and a pill press from the garage. Birdo was charged with demand property with menaces with intent to steal, uh, possession or attempt to prescribe a restricted substance and possession of a tablet press or drug encapsulator. He was refused bail to appear in Newcastle local court. Oh, I was just making Tic Tacs. Yeah, I was just my breath sometimes gets a little unfruity. The first time Australia heard about Birdo was in 2018 after he lost his $40,000 prosthetic leg while he was jet skiing in Lake Macquarie. I love this. I love this bit of it. Birdo told reporters that he'd lost it after crashing his jet ski when the throttle got stuck. After it fell off, his heavy prosthetic leg sunk to the bottom of the lake in an area said to have strong currents. Later that day, father of one Birdo posted on Facebook in the hope someone could help him find it. He wrote, Yeah, so today I lost a $40,000 leg in Swansea Channel. Uh, If anyone's seen it hopping around, give me a bell. Cheers! Birdo had lost his leg in a car accident in 2012 and did not have the prosthetic leg insured. Ah, well, there's a misstep. Yeah. Uh See what I did there? uh -uh. After his friends were unable to find his missing leg, a GoFundMe page was set up to raise money for a new one. I was unable to find out if he raised enough money for a new leg or if the old one washed up somewhere, but Birdo was wearing a prosthetic leg when he allegedly attempted to rob the bank and when detectives arrested him. So hopefully this means he didn't turn to a life of crime just so that he could pay for a new prosthetic leg. Mm. So fellow Aussies, if you happen to be scuba diving around Lake Macquarie, keep an eye out for Birdo's leg. Well, maybe if you're fishing too, a lot of fishing going on at Lake yeah, Macquarie. Yeah, you know, keep yeah. an eye out. It belongs to Birdo. I'm sure he would probably like it back. Hey, Dad, I think I've got something really big on the line. Oh, that's a good one there, son. Oh, oh let, me careful. Just, let me just pull it in. Yeah, careful. Oh, You've got to do it. Got to do it slowly. I'm doing it. Oh, got to do it slowly, son, slowly. We've talked about this. Do you need it? Okay, I'm going to help you. I'm going to help you. Dad, I think it's another leg. Oh, for fuck's sake, Kevin. Do I kiss it and throw it back? Yeah, yeah. Oh, but I'll just catch it again then. Oh, well, maybe you can keep it. Maybe uh, maybe you can give it to the dog or something. Or make it into a lamp. It'll look really sweet. <laughs> oh, poor Birdo. <laughs> that brings us to the end of another episode. But before we go, we'd like to thank some people who took the time to write us some good reviews. Thank you to Hopscotch86, a.k.a. Lara from the United States. We've got Grey Likes Beer from Australia. Me too, Grey. Yeah, me too, Grey. And we have Phantom of the Metalocalypse. Um, We got this one via YouTube. They said, Tara and Barney! Exclamation point. I've been binge listening the shit out of Bloody Murder podcast of late. 
Found it through Cambo's True Crime Island. Also a great podcast. He's not wrong. True that. And I can't believe I just stumbled upon this gem. How does this video not have more views? So, yeah, um, they must have been watching um, the Ask Me Anything video that we made in, around Christmas. In, Ask um, Mouth Ass. Yeah, Ask Mouth Ass video that we made uh, around Christmas in 2017. Oh, we were so young and innocent then. Yeah. And that's available on, on YouTube if anyone wants to check it out. I don't know. I think I might die if I watched it now. <laughs> um, yeah, wow. He says, anywho, hey, oh, I don't know if it's a he. They say, any, anywho, hey from the UK and keep kicking against the pricks. P.S. True Crime Toilet Wine and Aussie Az are excellent features. Love you guys. Thank you so much, Phantom of the Metalocalypse. <laughs> That's it. We also had a lovely uh, email from Nicola, who lives in Adelaide, South Australia. Yeah, thank you for that. For that. Um, we'd also like to thank our Facebook moderating team. We love our patrons, Tara, and in an attempt to show them how much we do, we're holding monthly giveaways. February's lucky winner of the set of funky bloody murder fridge magnets was Heather Ignash. When I told her, she went, what? (laughs) (laughs) Congratulations, Heather. Sometimes I love my job. Yeah. This month, we're giving away a bloody murder T-shirt with the design, Tara Touch My Muscles. Dot, 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 no Barney, stop being weird. Spot all the bloody murder references in this turn-of-the-century game of Spoto. To win, just join our Bloody Murder Patreon at a level of $5 or above. Now, we've had a bunch of new bloody legends join our Patreon program. So thank you to Amber Rogers. Rowan Sweeney. Melissa Fraser. Rosie Dillo. Kim Purple. And Baby Sam. Hey, Baby Sam. We met Baby Sam and Kim. Fru Halsham's daughter. From Iceland. Alison Schaefermeyer. Dr. Alison Schaefermeyer. Oh, thank you. Dr. Alison Schaefermeyer. Robbie McCain. And Nia T. If you would like to support us, visit our website if you just or if you just want to buy us a drink because we're really thirsty. There's a PayPal donate button there too. I've been Barney Black. And I've been Tara Saraban. And this is Bloody Murder. Please don't forget to review us on Apple Podcasts or our Facebook page or, or Stitcher if you have it. I think we're pretty hated on Stitcher. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Pretty hated on Stitcher. <laughs> I don't know why the Stitcher people If you're hate listening us, on Stitcher, give us a good review. <laughs> and of course, rate and subscribe. It really helps us. Uh, you can follow us through our Facebook page or join our awesome Facebook group. Uh, on Twitter, we're at Bloody Murder Pod. And on Instagram, we're Bloody underscore Murder underscore Podcast. Check out our website, bloodymurderpodcast.com, for news, galleries, more episodes and merchandise. Thanks for sticking around and we'll be back next week. Goodbye and adios. And keep kicking against the pricks. We're a comedy true crime podcast focusing on some of the lesser-known crime stories from Australia. And a rant, and a bit of a... <laughs> You've only said it 142 <laughs> fucking times. <laughs> Shandy baby. Yeah. Shandy baby. <laughs> oh, whoa, 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 whoa. As well as exclusive monthly uncensored patron only episodes where we were really let loose. Actually, what we've written here is where Barney is a gigantic pain in her ass and Tara, Tara just has to deal with it. Yeah. You put, what, a, you put a Barney trap in I there. I did, I did. That was my truth in advertising. <laughs> Because you are. Oh, my God. Especially with patron episodes. Sometimes I just... I think there was one where I couldn't get through page three for 45 minutes because you just kept at me. 
And at me. And at me. In 1988, after a whirlwind romance, phosphate miner Pie Carr and waitress Peggy Alexander got married. Oh, would you like a slice of pie every night? Yes, I would. Would you like a slice of my sweet pie? Hey, baby, you want a slice of my pie? I want the whole damn thing. Well, you can start with a slice and maybe like <laughs> seconds. You want second pie slice? Oh, I want third pie slice pie. So there's lots of orange groves around that area. It's very rural, right? Yeah. What do they eat for dinner? Is there oranges again for dinner tonight? Orange uh, pie. We've got orange pie and we've got orange juice. Well, you know who's never going to get scurvy? These or- guys. Orange stew. Mmm. Oh, yeah. I-, I love me some barbecued orange, personally, with a nice orange salad on the side. Oh, yum. Bit of an orange souffle. Wash it down with some... Um, Mulled orange. Uh, duck a la orange. <laughs> orange. Remember when I was dating that guy who was in Mensa and he was like a chess champion or something? Oh, yeah. Yeah, remember when I tried to nickname him Mensa Think Tank and he just didn't like it? He didn't have a sense of humour. He might have been real clever, but he never laughed at anything. I remember you telling me that he said, you know, you, you know, there used to be lions in the UK. Mm-hmm. That's why they're on the, the, you know, the coat of arms. Yeah, I remember. And I, and I just thought, what? Well, yeah, yeah. There's unicorns on there too, and dragons as well. Yeah, there used to be unicorns and dragons there, but they all got hunted into extinction. I don't think that's true. <laughs> there would be evidence of that. I believe in science. <laughs> Ah, Grandma fucked by the Christmas tree. Something or other. Chainsaws, boobs. Hey, Santa Claus, you cunt. Where's me fucking bike? <laughs> okay, yeah. You know real <laughs> lyrics. I just made mine up. Oh, that was terrible stuff. <laughs> <laughs> terrible. I loved it when I was 12, yeah. by the way. <laughs> I, I'm not proud of it. <laughs> the ER physicians couldn't initially find a cause for her pain. One cheeky doctor had the... Uh, It's not cheeky. It's just fucking cunty, mansplainy, condescending. It's not cheeky. One cunty, mansplaining (laughs) doctor had the audacity to tell... No, but just say it normal. Or was that an outtake? (laughs) (laughs) One cunty doctor. You know what? Actually, one cunty doctor. That's actually good. I'm okay with it after all. The bottle caps from the full bottles showed evidence that they'd been removed by a small tool and then placed back... Sorry, it's a small tool. You're giggling over small tool. You're a small tool. I'm a gigantic tool. What That's are you talking true. about? You, you, but when you were a baby, you were a small tool. No, I was still And then still you grew huge. into a gigantic tool. I was nine pound ten. I was like a sharp hay. I had like rolls and rolls and rolls. <laughs> <laughs> Thank God I was a cesarean because I don't think my yeah, mum could well, have handled that Yeah, you that still leave the, leave the house by the window, don't you? It's a habit. It's a joke. Aren't jokes supposed to be funny? Uh, not mine. <laughs> They're all dad jokes. I think we've established that quite firmly. Come on, Shandy. With a potential motive emerging, police... <laughs> I don't know what that was. Emerging. I Emer- think it was just a bit... Oh, he had a potential motive emerging. You know, it's a potential motive... With a potential motive emerging, please oh, begin focusing on like Diana that. and George Trapel. Today, today, today. It's nope. Thursday today. Normal Barney. Ding! He avoided eye contact with them and stuttered through most of his answers. When they asked him why he thought someone might want to poison the cars, his response was telling. He said, Someone must have wanted them to move out of the neighbourhood. Someone must have wanted them to move out of the neighbourhood. <laughs> 
Someone must have wanted them to move out of the neighbourhood. Someone must have wanted them to move out of the neighbourhood. Someone must have wanted them to move out of the neighbourhood. Hey, baby, someone must have wanted them to move out of the neighbourhood. Well, someone must have wanted them to move out of the neighbourhood. <laughs> oh, business, Tara. <laughs> Is there anything she can't do? I always listen to Business Tara because she has got some some authority in her voice. Oh, yes, she does, actually. Um, A lot of authority. Um, None of it's been earned, but she has been in the position as head of HR for many years. Yes, um, this company doesn't allow such things to happen in the workplace. I like it when I see raccoons with clothes on. Oh, yeah, and when they're standing on their little back legs and yeah. they look like little humans. There's something about raccoons with clothes on. Mm, yeah, yeah. I try, you know, every time I see one, I dress it with my eyes. Yeah, I love their little bandit masks. They're, <laughs> up, they're up to, you know, rambunctious capers and hijinks. Oh, yeah, tomfoolery. Tomfoolery, the lot. Yeah. Remember when we got Cambo to say tomfoolery? <laughs> did it take him a few goes? It did. It was awesome. <laughs> Tom, f- hang on, I've got to get around. Tom Foolery. Tom Foolery. <laughs> oh, Cambo. Uh, I love him getting him to say rambunctious too. Yeah. <laughs> he did not like saying rambunctious. I remember that. Yeah, yeah. Congratulations, Cambo. <laughs> yeah, Cambo got married. Hooray. Yeah. Kate finally made an honest man out of him. Oh, I don't know about that. Shh. <laughs> 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 And now for the conclusion of the Mensa murder mystery. George... Hang on. <laughs> All right, I'm just going to do one slower. I'm going to do one slower, you small tool. You can do it right into the mic too like this. And I know, so. but that's creepy. And now for the conclusion. And now for the conclusion of the Mensa murder mystery. And now for the conclusion of the Mensa murder mystery. Woo! <laughs> candy, candy, no. candy! I can't let you go. Stop it! <laughs> Am I doing it again? Yeah, go on. Pointing the finger at your wife, eh? That won't end well, or get you any conjugal visits. Yeah, my my sex dungeon. It's a bit lonely down there. <laughs> I really shouldn't have done that. Mm. Of George Trapel, Prosecutor Joe Agura. John. John. I was worried about the surname and I fucked up John. <laughs> you fucked up the word John. <laughs> That's a very uncommon name. It's very, you may not have heard it before. How, how would you pronounce such an such a exotic name? Such as, what is, what, how is it? Johuna? Johuna? Oh, yes, I believe it's an old uh, tribal name. Very exotic. <laughs> yeah, it's come from some kind of pagan religion, I believe. Personal trainer and mid-thigh amputee, 28-year-old Toby Bird, was arrested on January 3rd this year after robbery and serious crime squall... Crime. Oh, he's leading a life of crime. Oh, there is a W in crime. Yeah, <laughs> I fucking put one in there. Personal trainer and mid-thigh amputee, 28-year-old Toby Bird, was arrested on... Was arrested on January 3rd this year after robbery and serious crime... I fucking did it again! lying that it wasn't on and they were using sonic pressure on my head since 1997.
Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.